Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 37, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, October the 21st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We, After a couple of days in the book of Lamentations, the, the lament of Jeremiah over the destruction of Jerusalem, now we move forward into the book of Ezra, which is the book that's going to show us about the rebuilding of the city as well as the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And so we're going to be looking at Ezra 1, the first 11 verses. We're, we're concluding or coming to a conclusion in the book of 1 Corinthians the 16th chapter today, the first nine verses, and then in the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. So what we see or saw yesterday was the the pathetic state of the city of Jerusalem after um, it had been destroyed by the king of Babylon. And so here what we get in Ezra is the beginning of hope. After the long exile in Babylon, now we have the beginning of hope the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple, the, the king of Babylon's MO, modus operandi, was, was when he conquered a people would be to bring them to Babylon to show them the wonder of Babylonia and, and the Babylonian culture. And, and assimilate, the, the prospect would be to assimilate them into that culture, proving it to be superior in every single way, including... Well, militarily, which means that our God is greater than your God as well. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's modus operandi. Now we're going to meet a different king, a king of Persia. and His MO is different. His MO is to be generous and beneficent to the people who had been conquered and to allow them to go back and, and reestablish themselves in their own lands. So the Jews have petitioned for this and are being given permission to go back. But it's based on the magnanimity of the king. So, yes, you might have your own God and your own cultures, and all those things are great, but remember who it is who, who gave you actually the ability to go back and worship that God. And so he's setting himself up, in a way, as greater than. And you hear that a little bit in this passage that we get today. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that they would be coming back, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. So everywhere that he belonged to him, which would have included Babylonia, (laughs) because he had conquered So he says, everybody, wherever you might be, I want you to listen to this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, it's interesting that that Judah is mentioned as one of the places because Judah wouldn't mean anything much to anybody other than Jews. 
But what he's saying is the Lord of the the Lord Hashem, the God of heaven. What he doesn't say is earth, because the belief would have been that God was the God of heaven and all things, and that then men, kings particularly, were given dominion over the earth. And it's not an entirely unbiblical concept, but its application is unbiblical, because God continues to be Lord of heaven and of earth. And all things in heaven and on earth will ultimately, and under the earth, will give him praise and will recognize him for what he is. So it's sort of a deistic way of looking at the world. In other words, that God is the great watchmaker who made the watch, then wound it up, and then he stands back from a distance and watches how we get along. But he's a not a completely dispassionate observer, but he doesn't get involved. And he allows us to do as we please, good and bad. So that's that's who he's speaking to. That's that's the God that, that Cyrus recognizes. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Ah, now we get to the nub of it. He's the God who is in Jerusalem. He's the Lord of heaven, but he's present in earth. So he's recognizing him as a mighty and high and powerful God, but he's the one who's in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place, wherever he is, with gold and silver, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. So these are the tribes that were still there, the ones that were taken into captivity into Babylon. And they then, each tribe would be, you know, Judah and Benjamin would be tribes, and then below that would be clans. And so these are the heads of the father's houses. That's who we're talking about, is, is those, those subsets of the tribes. And the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And that reminds me very much of what happens at the Exodus, right? As they're leaving Egypt, they get lovely parting gifts from the Egyptians who are giving them things so that they will leave. They're giving some sort of obeisance, some sort of uh, head nod at least, towards these people and their God. And so the, the same is true here. So Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, um, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 100 or a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So they give them everything that had been taken from them that Nebuchadnezzar had put into the house of his gods. They made an inventory of those things that had come from the temple in Jerusalem and sent those things back to Jerusalem where they belonged. And this is Cyrus, this was Cyrus's way of dealing with conquered peoples. He felt like it was much better to be to show magnanimity towards them, and to allow them to continue to do what they do, and didn't perceive that to be a threat to himself. Now, the Jewish belief is very different. 
right? So, so what the, what he's what he could have seen was what happened hundreds of years before, thousands of years before, in Egypt, when the people came out from Egypt. That the, they came out because they, and thus their God, were a challenge to the power of kings. It's to say you don't have the final authority or the final say in these matters. And so that's what's going on here is, is that, that Cyrus is releasing them to do this, but it's under his authority as though he were still in control of all these things. He did much the same in, in other conquered lands. He did the same in, in Babylon. There's an edict there where he talks about the god Marduk, who is the god of that region, welcomed him and allowed him to, to rule there. And so the, you see this same thing. He, he's, he's essentially being, being very kind to people and allowing them to have their own cultures. In the gospel today, Jesus, aware of this, is the beginning of this. And what, what he's aware of is that the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, which is the way the gospel reading ended yesterday. So he withdrew from that place, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And we know that God was well pleased with Jesus. He said it. <laughs> he said it exactly that way. Behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And Jesus has done that multiple times, not by going to Gentile lands, but but by his encounters with Gentiles, like Roman centurions, the um, the Sidonian woman, and all that, and commending their faith. So he proclaimed justice to the Gentiles, the Gentiles that he encountered, because remember he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and so the just the Gentiles that Jesus encountered, justice was proclaimed to them as he healed them in the same ways that he healed his people. So justice is done when all are treated alike. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And Jesus didn't. He didn't seek that sort of uh, provocative, um, boisterous, tempestuous, confrontational sort of style. He went about his business wherever he was and met the challenges of the moment in order that the kingdom might expand. He, he was not the one provoking these encounters until the very last week of his life when he was in Jerusalem knowing where this was going to go and after the people had proclaimed him to be the son of David. It, it's only then in that period of time, that brief period of time, that he's most intentionally provocative in the temple because he's teaching there every day. But one of the most provocative things he does refers back to this justice to the Gentiles. When he throws out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals, he's doing that so that the Gentiles, who would otherwise be congregating in that place so that they could hear the proclamations that were going on there, they were crowded out and pushed out beyond where they had every right to be under the law. And so Jesus is trying to incorporate them. He's, when he says, it's a house of prayer for all nations, that's exactly what that means. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. 
until he brings justice to victory, and in his names, the name the Gentiles will hope, which is also something that we see in when he comes into the temple. And, and we see that uh, that he's welcomed there, but, but he is a light to lighten the Gentiles, is the description that we get from the Song of Simeon. And so that we see this same thing, but but what he, what were they saying? What he's saying is what what Isaiah, Isaiah is getting at is this is one of the suffering servant passages that he's not going to come and break everything down until he brings justice to victory, and so he's preparing us for the kind of Messiah, the kind of coming of the servant who who is typified in Jesus. He comes with meekness and humility rather than a rod of iron. And that's why Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which is to say that's an, that the donkey is uh, a symbol of peace as opposed to coming into town on a horse, which is a symbol of war. In the epistle today, Paul is giving some final instructions to the Corinthian church here. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, in other words, the stuff that, that goes out to those who are in need, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you're also to do. I want you to do the same thing that I told the churches in Galatia to do. On the first day of every week, which is Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, something aside, and store it up so that he, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Go ahead and start doing it now. Don't set it aside for later. No, do this now. Begin today to save up, to set some money aside for this. That way, when I come, the money's already there. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he says, you tell me who you trust to take this money to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. I'm not going to take it on my own. Nope. You all are going to be in control of this process from beginning all the way to taking it to Jerusalem for the relief of the saints, wherever that need may be. He said, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia. I'm going to come, but I've got to go through Macedonia first. I intend to pass through Macedonia. And we know in, in Acts, we know that we see the man of Macedonia in the vision that's given to Paul, beckoning him to come to Macedonia. And perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So he, he's, this help can be in the form of, of their comfort, their provision, their uh, fellowship with him. And so he says, I, I want to stay with you a while. I might even spend the winter there, but I don't want to just see you now in passing. I want to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. However, know this, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So when the Pentecost is in, in the spring. So he says, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. That's the first fruits. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So, so he's writing them from Ephesus and telling them encouraging news that a wide door for effective work has been opened to him. And we know that he stayed in Ephesus a good long while. <clears throat> and then, because they were heartbroken when he left at Ephesus. However, by the time he left Ephesus, he had no choice because Alexander the coppersmith and others had taken offense because Paul 
message was converting people, and when people converted, they no longer wanted the idols that Alexander and his guild were making. And so ultimately, he has to go away from Ephesus, largely because he's going to be put on trial there otherwise. He says, but a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. You know, Paul didn't accept adversaries as a reason to walk away. He, he's, he's being realistic and honest. He's saying, I'm going to stay here for two reasons. An effective, a wide door for effective work is open, and there are many adversaries. That's the, one of the reasons Paul's going to stay in Ephesus. He wants to be the one who makes sure that the adversaries are defeated in order that the church might not wither and die if he leaves. So he is staying there to confront those adversaries and to strengthen this church. He's not one to run from a fight, not in a million years. And that's exactly the way that we need to take an attitude. We need to take the attitude of we know God's given us something to do. We, we go into it with eyes wide open that there will be adversaries, and we allow him to answer those adversaries on our behalf just exactly the way Jesus always did. He used Scripture, the Word of God, to counter any adversary, and in the same way, Paul did that very thing. And Ezra the priest is now preparing to preach the Word of God and renew the worship of God back in the temple of God that will be rebuilt in that day. We have to always be aware there will be adversaries, but we have to be prepared to confront those adversaries as well.